0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Jeremiah 16, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. But they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by, the, by famine. And their corpses shall be meat for the bird of birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in mourning uh, in mourning for them, to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or for their mother. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. And it shall be when you show the, uh, this people all these words that they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods, and have served them, and worshiped them, and have forsaken me, and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart, so that no one listens to me. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. Pretty severe... Passage here that Jeremiah is told. Not only was Jeremiah to deliver a verbal message of God's coming, you know, judgment on his people, but how Jeremiah lived his life was also a message to his people. Uh, It's not unlike some of the other prophets. Remember, Hosea was told to marry a prostitute, and that was to be a message to the children of Israel. Um, Isaiah, his sons, their names meant, you know, he had different sons, and each one of their names was significant to the message that Isaiah was to present to God's people. And Jeremiah here, as we read just moments ago, was told to remain a bachelor, never to get married, never to have any kids. Now, there are three things Jeremiah was told by God in that passage. First of all, don't get married. But also, don't enter the house of mourning to comfort the surviving families of the dead. And also, don't enter the house of mirth. You know, uh, you know, having a festival or going to a, a dinner party, things like that, a joyous occasions. Why? Well, there are many reasons. But what God is trying to convey through Jeremiah to the people is that is just the totality and the severity of God's judgment against them. At a time of great calamity, which is coming, it wouldn't be wise to marry, to have children, because if you can imagine the burden that would be placed on Jeremiah to also care for a family, for anybody going through a calamity, you know, it's one thing when you're by yourself and you you know you only have yourself to worry about, but when you have loved ones that are also you know part of whatever's going on, it's just an added burden. And so, from a, maybe even from a practical point standpoint, God is telling um, Jeremiah, "Hey, you know, just remain single and uh, don't marry." You know, Paul mentions the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Apparently, they were going through persecution too. He said, "In light of the present distress, if you're not already married, don't get married." He doesn't say it's wrong if you do, but he says, that, "You know, it, the wise approach through a time of difficulties just don't get married." Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, the disciples are asking him, hey, what's, what's it going to be like when you return to set up your kingdom here on earth? And Jesus in Matthew 24 and in Luke chapter 23 goes through and he starts talking about what the last days are going to be like and specifically the great tribulation. And at that point, he says, you know, whoa, if you have children or if you're, if you're a mother nursing a baby, whoa, during that time because of the calamity that was going on. And so Jeremiah was also told not to go to, uh, not to comfort those who were dead. Why? Because there would be so many that were dying as a result of the Babylonian uh, uh, invasion. How could he possibly comfort each family? But there's even a deeper reason behind that, I believe. You know, He says, I've taken my peace away and my loving kindness and my mercy from my people. They were in sinful, willful disobedience to God. Now, when they died because of the results of their sins, how can you comfort them? How can you give them peace? You know, it's interesting. I, I've been asked to, uh, last year I was asked to do a, a, a funeral for someone who was an unbeliever. And I didn't really know the person real well, so I kind of read up on their history and, you know, what little history I had that was given to me. And, uh, you know, it was a real dilemma for me. How, how do I preach? How do, how do I present a message of hope to, a, to a, a, an unbeliever's funeral. I can't say, well, you know, at least they're in a better place because I don't know that they're in a better place. In fact, more than likely, they're not in a better place. So, so what kind of peace can I give the family? And so basically I, I looked at their the person's life, and, you know, they seem like a very, you know, a, generally a good person, so I kind of dealt with some of those good things, not saying that, the, hey, now they're in heaven because of that, but I just kind of, you know, you want to you comfort the family, but then I turned it and said, well, but, but you guys are here now. What about you guys? You know, what about your lives? And so I was able to actually bring the gospel into it. And I don't know that they appreciated that. But, you know, hey, I'm a pastor, and I love Jesus, and I'm going to share about him if I, if I can. And so I did. But it's hard to impart peace to someone who's an unbeliever, who's being under God's judgment. It, it's hard. You can't, you know, how do you do that? And so Jeremiah was told to not comfort those who were dying. And Jeremiah was told not to go to the house of mirth. In other words, don't don't go to dinner parties and don't have festivals and stuff like that. Why? Well, how can you party on when, uh, you know, with all these people that are ignoring God's word when you know that judgment is coming? I mean, how can you do it? You can't ignore the reality, right? I think most important, the reason why Jeremiah was told these things was that his life had to match what he was saying. His ma- his life had to match what he believed. Hey Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if you really believe my word, if you really believe that there's this coming, calamity coming, how can you party? How can you laugh? How can you comfort people? I mean, you know, how can you live and go on and get married and have children and, and pursue your family just like nothing's going on when you know, in fact, that something is going to happen and something terrible? And so Jeremiah's life, his actions needed to match his words, that kind of strikes home with me personally, because you know I, I believe firmly that Jesus is coming back soon for His church. I mean, you can see all the signs around. You read, you know, you read the newspaper every day, and it's you, you could read the newspaper in the Book of Revelation or the Book of Daniel. You can, I mean, you can read those things and go, "Wow, look at the correlation there! It's not a coincidence." But if you really believe that, like I believe that, then you know the way I'm living my life does it match up with that do I honestly believe Jesus could come back soon anytime because if you really believe that you, you know your life your work your life should match up with what you're saying and so Jeremiah God's telling him Jeremiah I want your life to be a message not only your words but your life to be a message to the nation and I think God's calling you and I to do the same thing that our lives are to be a message not just our words but the way we live our lives Well, continuing on here in verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers." When you read Jeremiah, you know, there's a lot of negative stuff that God's telling his people because of their disobedience. But you get to these places in Jeremiah where all of a sudden God's speaking about his mercy and his love. And in the middle of judgment, in the midst of pronouncing judgment, God in his mercy says, hey, but you know what? I'm going to take you back. I'm going to bring you back into the land. And before their captivity, they looked back to the time of you know, I mean, they they venerated Moses. And I mean, you know, they looked up to him and to Abraham and them. And, and they look back to that time when God brought them out of Egypt, miraculously brought them into the promised land, and gave them the land that they live in. And God says, wow, he was real. Or they say, you know, God was alive and he was active in our lives back then. And God says, hey, you know what? you're no longer going to be looking back to that time you now you're going to be looking back to when god when i bring you back into the land from your captivity and that was an amazing thing that was a miraculous thing you know it's funny i was uh, looking at a commentary and uh, one of the ones i i just kind of started to appreciate it more and more it's jameson fawcett and brown and this commentary came out it was originally published in 1871 and this verse, they have a comment about it. And it's interesting because they acknowledge that, that this verse that we just read is not completely fulfilled. And they, say, they said, you know, in the verse is, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. And the reason why they say it's not fully fulfilled, they say, you know, it points to Babylon because, you know, God brought them out of Babylon into Israel. But they didn't come from all different lands. They came from Babylon, and so they said this must be a yet this prophecy must have a yet fulfilling to it, you know, a future fulfillment. Well, that was back in 1871, but you know what? (laughs) It's been fulfilled. The Lord lives. Why do I say that? Well, because May 14th, 1948, after 2,000 plus years, God miraculously brought the children of Israel, back to the land and gave them their land, their culture, their language. They even have the shekel again, which they had way back 2,000 years ago. It's a miracle that a nation could come from, uh, scattered all over the the four corners of the world, be brought back into the land and have everything intact the way they are, and to be miraculously thousands and thousands of of Arabs all around them. Arabs, not the Arab, but you know, lots of... Middle Eastern people that you know that they hate them and they're trying to wipe them off the face of the map and yet they've been unable to do that because God and His sovereignty and His mercy is protecting Israel. Not that Israel's a righteous nation; they're not, but God has chosen to bring them back to the land. And so, man, the Lord lives. Yeah, we look at that now and go, "Wow, God is alive." That alone should encourage you. That we're getting closer to the last days. That alone should encourage you. That you know what God is still alive and He's still active in human history. You and I were alive during a period of unprecedented prophetic fulfillment. I honestly believe that. You know you're familiar with what Jesus said the days would be like when His uh, before His return. I quoted one verse, but in Matthew 24. You don't have to turn there, but in verse 6 it says, And you will hear of wars and rumor of wars. And, of course, we know that. See that you are not troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And we look at that and go, yeah, of course, we're seeing that more and more and more. But then Jesus said, all these are the beginning of sorrows. It's just starting. It's just like a you know a woman's going into labor and they, they just, you know, every once in a while they start having a labor pain. It's not the baby's still not coming yet, but it's it's getting closer. That's basically what Jesus is saying there. But he continues, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And this is what I find interesting. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another and that just jumped out at me many will be offended why because we've reached a time today in this year you know 10 15 years ago i could preach a message against homosexuality that it's a sin and you know god will judge that sin just like he'll judge all other sin and and you know there would be any, there probably wouldn't be any repercussions for me preaching that and saying that 10 15 years ago but today today it's labeled as offensive. People are offended by it, and it's hateful speech. It's, you know, I, I'm labeled as a hate monger because of that. So, I mean, things are happening so fast in our culture. We're fast approaching the time when we'll either have to capitulate to the culture of tolerance for any kind of sinful lifestyle, or you and I as believers. As narrow-minded fundamental believers that believe the Bible, we're going to have to take a stand for righteousness. But just like Jeremiah, it's going to come at a cost. It's going to cost more and more to be a believer as we draw closer to the last days. I firmly believe that as well. Continuing in verse 16, Behold... I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols." God says they're going to be pursued and caught by the Babylonians, and of course, it's the picture of the fishermen and the hunters. In other words, there's gonna, not going to be any place for them to hide to escape God's judgment. God sees what's going on. He's he, you know you can't hide from God, and and I you know I think how many times do you and I we sin and somehow we think it escapes God's notice? You know that He, just, he doesn't see us. Hebrews four thirteen tells us, "There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." In Leviticus it says, "Be sure your sin will find you out." You know we have all these warnings. God's watching your and my lives. He, you know, what what? How should we respond to that? Well, first of all, we need to realize that our actions, our thoughts, even our intentions are laid bare before God. And then, of course, keep short accounts with God. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The fear of realizing, you know, God God's a holy God and, and He sees my life. He even sees what I'm thinking. And so I, ne- I just need to, I need to keep bear that in mind. Keep it in check. And then repent when I have sinned. Now in verse 19 here, Jeremiah seems to be prophesying about the future Gentile church. "'O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, "'Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. "'Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? "'Therefore, behold, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my, right, uh, my hand and my might, That and they shall know that my name is the Lord. It, it seems to be pointing to Gentile believers. But now continuing on to chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills, here's some very picturesque speech here, speaking about their sins being written with a with a pen of iron and a diamond tip. You know, diamond's the hardest surface, the hardest uh, substance, and you know you can engrave with diamonds. and, and this is the the idea that's being presented here, that their sins are engraved on tablets. It's interesting, the tablets of their hearts. You know, when God gave the children of Israel the Ten Commandments, He engraved the Ten Commandments with His finger in stone and gave you know, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments to Moses. And Moses, of course, came down and presented them to the people. But, you know, even way back in Deuteronomy and in those, in, the, in those first five books of the Bibles, we read about what happened with Moses. God even there says that he had always intended for his law to be engraved, not only on the stone tablets, but engraved on the tablets of their hearts. What does he mean by that? He means that they would not only obey the letter of the law, but that they would obey the principle and the, and the spirit of the law, that it would be on their hearts. That the principles of His commandments would drive their affections, their attitudes, as well as their outward actions. That's what God always wanted. But God looks at His people here and goes, you know what's written on the tablets of their hearts? Sin. You see, that's what's motivating them. Instead, their affections, their attitudes, and their actions were all motivated by sin. Verse 3, O oh, my mountain in the field, I give you, I will give as plunder your wealth and all your treasures and your high places of sin within your borders, within all your borders, excuse me, and you, even yourself, shall go shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see good, uh, not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Cursed is them you know that, that turn and put their trust in man. you know while the, with the coming invasion of the Babylonians, many of the Jews wanted to turn to Egypt for a military alliance against Babylon. They, you know, they wanted to go to someone to protect them. And God is telling them here through Jeremiah, hey, Egypt's not even going to be able to spare you from the Babylonians. And there's, a, of course, a spiritual, a very heavy, uh, you know, important point here, and that is that the person who trusts in human flesh, be it someone else or themselves, And not the Lord, man. It curses upon them. And then, of course, the picture here. They're going to be like a shrub in the desert, inhabiting parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land not inhabited. You know, basically, there'd be nothing to feed and sustain that plant. You get the image of something that is barely clinging to life, certainly not thriving, and certainly not fruitful. And for you and I, it's, of course, folly to trust in man in man's institutions. But now we get the contrast here with the person who trusts in the Lord and not themselves or any other man. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Well, I, I want that for my life. Go to Psalm one and read that. Psalm one. It's almost like a like a, a very. It's almost like a, a re quoting of Psalm one, basically. The person who puts his trust in the Lord and not in the, in man. He's going to be like a tree or she's going to be like a tree planted by waters. You get the idea of a, a thick root base. You get the idea of green leaves that are that are they're just nourished by that moisture in the ground that's just, just always continually fed and, and being fruitful, producing fruit. And when the heat of trials come, because they always come, right? Or a time of drought... That plant doesn't fear. It doesn't shrivel up and die, and it doesn't stop being fruitful. That's a picture of you and I when we put our trust in the Lord instead of in ourselves or in mankind, being constantly fed and nourished through that foundation that we have. Because, you know, we all go through trials, whether you're a believer or not a believer. I'd I'd love to share a gospel message that says, if you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. Well, that's not true. You're going to probably have more problems because now you're going to be striving against sin and you're going to have, you know, unbelieving family or friends that are going to be ostracizing you or giving you a bad time. I mean, it's, it's going to be more difficult coming to faith in Christ. But if you make Him your foundation and His Word your foundation and you're, and you're, and you're grounded and you're rooted in that, then when those trials come that are going to come to everybody you're not going to shrivel up and die. And you can even be fruitful. I mean, you don't even just like hang on, but you actually can thrive as well as survive when you put your trust in God. Verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That is a very key verse there. I mean, there's some real important doctrine that's, that's just, you know, tied up in that one verse. I could take that one verse and make like a, you know, five-point sermon on it. You know, we could get into all kinds of stuff. And, and maybe you've used that verse when you're sharing the gospel with people. That, you know, the heart's deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I think, though, you have to look at the context. And of course, it's true, but you have to look at the context here of what Jeremiah had just said. And I think the context is the point seems to be that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're trusting in the Lord and not human flesh. As believers. How's that? I was trying to come up with a phrase, and I came up with this. It's a term. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm coining it. I should maybe you know register it or whatever you do. Catastrophic faith. Like, catastrophic faith. What am I talking about? This is the type of faith where we turn to the Lord when catastrophes hit us, but only after all else has failed. You know, we've tried everything ourselves and nothing's failed. It's like, okay, now, Lord, I need your help. That's what I would term catastrophic faith. We try to manage our problems ourselves first, and then we turn to the Lord. And suddenly we're more aware of God's presence. You know, we pray more. We turn to His promises and His Word. I, you know, I got to find some Scripture to cling to, and, and uh, we even talk about Him more. You know, how are you going? Oh, you know, God's, you know, I'm I'm trusting the Lord for this. I'm going through this stuff, but a lot of times, if we're honest, it's after you and I have tried everything in ourselves, and we've we we can not do it. We we you know, we've tried this or that, and it's not working. Okay, now I need to turn to You, Lord. That's what I would call catastrophic faith. You know the thing about God? He is such a merciful God that sometimes, in fact, many times, He uses those situations and He allows you and I. You know, He uses them to get us to draw us back to Him. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing to, you know, when you're going through a difficulty, to turn to the Lord, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not knocking that. But what I am getting, trying to get across is that He doesn't want that to be the extent of our relationship with Him. Where we try everything in our own strength and then it does okay, it's not working, okay now Lord, now will you take over and rather than just turning to Him, and you see, we can deceive ourselves, I believe, into thinking that we are trusting in the Lord when we're really not, when we're really trying to do things in our own strength. It's like, you know, a person has a relationship with God that's more of flood or fire insurance. You know, you, you got the policy. If a flood comes, no, well, you got that policy. You're protected. But in the meantime, you don't really use it because you don't need it, right? But you're sure glad you got it. You, sometimes our relationship with God's like that. I'll, I'll take care of it. You know, if things are going well, I'm going to handle things of my own strength and stuff. And if things get really bad, then I'm going to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I I, I can't do this. Can you do it? God loves you, and he's not going to turn you away. He's not going to say, well, forget it should have called me sooner. He's still going to turn. He's still going to help you. But what kind of a relationship is that? You know, if you're in a married relationship, can you imagine if the only time that you communicate with your spouse is when something's wrong? That that's the only time you talk to each other. What kind of relationship would that be? What kind of marriage would that be? Some of you say, "Well, that is my marriage." <laughs> no, hopefully not. <laughs> no. <laughs> hopefully not but But seriously, that that wouldn't be much of a relationship. And God doesn't want that kind of relationship with us either. He wants you and I to be turning to Him first and foremost and not even to be trusting in ourselves because we're man, human, you know. Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. You know, when I look at you, when I look at your life, I will always judge you by your actions, by what you do. I'll I'll judge whether you did something good or you did something bad. But when I'm judging me, I'm not judging me by my actions. I'm judging me by my motives behind my actions. I don't know your motives, right? So I just see your actions. Oh, man, that person did something. They offended me or whatever, you know. But when I do it to someone else, it's like, "Well, yeah, I may have done that, but you know that would have, I didn't mean that. I mean, I you know this is how I was feeling. and you know I, I try to excuse myself. but you see, God not only sees my actions, but he also knows what my heart is behind the actions. He knows what my motive is. He knows what my thought thinking is, my plan, you know how I, how I process those thoughts. He knows all that. Verse 11, as a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. You know, in addition to forsaking God and trusting in man, the people of Judah had also become wealthy through deceit. It goes back to Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 27 he says as a cage is full of birds so their houses are full of deceit therefore they have grown uh, become great and grown rich they have grown fat they are sleek yes they surpass the deeds of the wicked they do not please plead the cause the cause of the fatherless yet they prosper and the right of the needy they do not defend Basically, just talking about self-seeking people that are just worried about themselves, and they're they're getting rich through deceit. And I go, well, how how do, you know how do people get rich through deceit? Well, have you ever bought something from someone and they ripped you off? Kind of, you know, they they presented something as being really really good, and you buy it and you get it, and you go, wow, it's really really not that good. And we had that just recently with something we purchased last summer. You know, this guy seemed really nice and. And well, the trailer we 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 bought a camping trailer, and the guy seemed really nice. And you know, I'm gonna throw in this air conditioning unit, and I'm giving you this, this heater and stuff. Well, the heater, the knob was busted. The air conditioning unit, the cord was cut. And I'm like, okay, he really made us sound like he was really giving us a good deal when he was really kind of not, you know. And uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but but you know, sometimes we do that with people, right? And and that's kind of the the nature of Buying and selling in today's day and age. You try to get what you can as cheap as you can, and you try to sell things as high as you can, whether it's worth that or not. You know, tax time. People, I don't know, hopefully, I've never, I'll be honest with you, I've never, not, I should qualify this, I mean, I, not that I would, but I've never had the guts to cheat on my taxes. <laughs> not, and again, not that I ever would, but I mean, it's like, you know, but that's a way that people or gain riches through deceit. You know, one thing that used to, I used to notice a lot with people and even some Christians, you know, um, making false insurance claims, <laughs> you know, insurance fraud. I mean, all these things are deceitful. They're lying, and, and yet people are getting rich or, or gaining riches through that. And God says, you know, if you're doing it that way, it's, that wealth is going to just fly away. It's not going to benefit you at all. Verse 12, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Instead of trusting in man, they had the Lord God on the throne all along from the beginning. They could have turned to him any time in their time of need. But they had departed from the Lord. And he says, as a result, their names would be written in the earth. What does that mean? Well, basically, I think it means basically they'd have a reputation. Maybe they'd build up a good reputation, be here on earth only. Jesus in Luke 10, verse 20, told his disciples that uh, they should rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And this is, you know, the, the opposite of having your names written in the earth, I think, is having your names written in the Lamb's book of life, being written in heaven. But these people, they had a worldly reputation, basically. They could have turned to God, but they didn't. And in addition to departing from the Lord, he says they had forsaken the fountain of living waters. And that takes them right back to the very beginning of Jeremiah in chapter 2, when Jesus, when God says, For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I mean, they've just just turned away from God. And they've tried to do things in their own strength. And now Jeremiah here is crying out to the Lord. You know, as he's recording this prophecy, Jeremiah writes this in verse 14, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you. You know, I, I don't think we have a full appreciation of Jeremiah's calling. I think we're, we're going to be getting it as we go through the book of Jeremiah. But I think, to be honest, we don't have a, a just a complete, full appreciation. Why? Because his message was a negative message from the get-go. It was a message announcing God's impending judgment on the sins of the nation. And that wouldn't have been politically correct. Teresa and I went um, this last Friday night. We went up to the cities and heard um, David or Eric Metaxas. He wrote a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, he's doing a a nationwide tour, and we found out about it, and we bought tickets, and we went up and and listened to him speak. And and, uh, after he presented his thing, there was a question and answer period, and some comments were were going back and forth. And and one of the people that was uh, said, I don't know if it was him or the other guy that was up there, uh, said this comment, and it it just struck me. He said, Christians in other countries fear the raised fist. But he said, Christians in this country they fear the raised eyebrow. I thought, whoa. You know? Isn't that true? We're more worried about being politically correct. We're more worried about someone thinking that we're weird because we actually believe the Bible, that we really actually believe that you know there's sin and and, and that God's still gonna judge sin and you know when someone goes, You're you believe that? You know, it's like they raise their eyebrow at me. But really, that's the way our church is, nationwide. I mean, not just our church. <laughs> Jeremiah's message not only raised eyebrows, but it raised fists. His message, man, it was hated. And as a result, he was hated. They even, in fact, wanted to silence him. We're going to get a couple chapters from now that this guy named Pashur is going to want to just really silence him. They would love to kill him if they could. And I'll be honest with you, I think we're getting to that point in our culture where it'd be, you know, it should be better if those guys, those fundamentalists, were just out of the picture. We're getting to that point. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. Jeremiah didn't shy away from delivering God's message, even if it meant great personal cost to him, and it did looking at the second half of verse 16, "'Nor have I desired the woeful day.'" So Jeremiah didn't shy away from delivering a very unpopular message, but he also, on the other side of that, didn't revel in the destruction of the people. And right away I thought about Jonah. Remember Jonah? You know, he was told to go to Nineveh to tell him that God was going to destroy Nineveh, and so after being, you know, the, the whole fish incident and stuff, and... Uh, you know, being puked up and all that stuff, he finally went to Nineveh and he proclaimed the message in obedience to God. And when he got done with it, he went up on a mountain and was just waiting with satisfaction for the fireworks. Man, I can't wait till God destroys those little dirty, rotten sinners. And you know the story. God didn't do it because they repented of their sins. Well, Jeremiah said, hey, you know, I didn't shy away from giving that message, but I also didn't sit there and just, you know, self-righteously go, you dirty, rotten sinners. Jeremiah identified with his people, and it broke his heart. He wept for the people, knowing what would befall him. And so he says, God, you know, I, I didn't shy away from what you told me to do, and I also didn't, like, take pleasure in pronouncing your judgment on them. He continues, the end of verse 16, You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Verse 17, Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me. But do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. (laughs) You're going like, wait a minute, you just said that, uh, you know, is this guy schizophrenic? I mean, you know, you you just said that he wasn't, you know, self-righteously proclaiming doom on the people. And now he's talking about praying and asking God to destroy them with double destruction. I think this, and this is my opinion Jeremiah was genuinely concerned with the welfare of the people. It broke his heart from the sin, and and, and he would have nothing better than for them to repent. But I think this is directed to the people in the beginning that said, Hey, is God speaking? Let him speak now. They were scoffing and mocking. And it wasn't so much that they were scoffing and mocking him, but they were scoffing at God's Word, and they were mocking God. And I think that's where Jeremiah is praying this prayer. And he says, God, you know what came out of my lips. And he just earlier said, God knows our hearts. So God knew his heart in this matter. And as we, wherever you read in the Bible, there's no indication of any rebuke against Jeremiah. So I think it was righteous what he had done, what he had said here with his prayer. Verse 19, Thus the Lord said to me, Go stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day nor do any work but, I, uh, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction. The Sabbath, observing the Sabbath was a, was a commandment that God had given the children of Israel. And it was for the children of Israel and it was a perpetual command to them. And they had ignored the Sabbath day and i find it interesting that god's telling them hey you know start observing the sabbath because i think possibly that might have been their point of departure from walking with the lord it might have been just a simple neglecting the sabbath day you know i am going to do a little bit of work you know i'm just yeah i know god says not to do it but you know what i and just ignore just you know, just a little infraction, just a little neglecting God's word. Man, you know, I don't really need to do that or whatever. But from there it progressed to the point where they were sacrificing their children to Molech. They were worshiping all kinds of gods. They were deceiving one another. They were violent. There was all kinds of things that were going on in Judah at that time. And so God says, take heed to yourselves. And I think the Spirit would say that to you and I today. What starts out as neglect in your and my walk with the Lord, if we don't hate, take heed, it can progress into active willful disobedience. You just start drifting. That's just that drift that happens in our lives. And yet even in this late, even this late in their sin and in their disobedience, and there's still time to turn around as with you and I as well verse 24 and it shall be if you heed me carefully says the lord to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the sabbath day but hallow the sabbath day to not to do no work in it then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of david riding in chariots and on horses they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and, and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord that says you know even though it's this late even though i've pronounced judgment on you if you turn around i'll turn back all that judgment on you i mean that's a merciful god it reminds me of jesus when he went in on the mount of olives you know he came in uh, on a donkey that 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 uh, particular sabbath and it says there in uh, luke 19 it says now as he drew near he saw the city and wept over it saying if you had known even you especially in this your day the things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Because he said, "If you had just recognized me as my Messiah, you know, you wouldn't be destroyed at that point." But they didn't. They rejected the Lord, and so of course we know that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem not too long after, in seventy A.D. But God was willing to turn back his destruction if the people repented. And you know the thing is, he can do that. He could do it back then. He can do it now. When we get to, we won't do it today because it's, it's getting later, but in chapters 18 and 19, there's some really picturesque, uh, picturesque uh, language there about the potter and the clay. And basically, in that chapter, in chapter eighteen, God says, in, "You know, if, if you repent, man, I'll I'll just turn back, I'll turn back my judgment." And even in the midst of pronouncing judgment, God says, "If you just repent, I'll you know I'll stay my hand, and things will things will turn around." Verse seven, uh, twenty-seven. But if you will not heed my uh, me to hallow, excuse me. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. And that's exactly what we'll find out did happen eventually. You know, the more I read Jeremiah, the more I study it for our Sunday morning services, the more I see how his situation parallels our situation today. And I'm not just talking about the book of Jeremiah, but I I think where you and I as Christians are, we have an unpopular message that's being met with more and more resistance. How do we respond? Do we shy away, become silent, and just, you know, we don't want the raised eyebrows, so we're not going to say anything? Are we fearing man? Or do we also just sit back and pronounce how bad things are? look at how bad this culture is, and we just proclaim everything that's wrong with the culture and just await for the judgment day? Or do you and I pick up Jeremiah's mantle and live and speak consistently? uh, That our lives are a message, not only our words, and we're urging people to turn back to the Lord. So the more I look at Jeremiah, the more I see, man, this is of all the books we've done so far, to me this seems to be the most paralleling where you and I are at, at least at the church in the United States anyways, in this day and age. And so I think there's a a very, very much, you know, very uh, important things for you and I to consider and decide how we're going to live our lives. Are we going to be like Jeremiah? Or are we going to be not? Not. So I think the choice is up to us.